kids, you can meet at the back of the sanctuary. We'll see you kids ministry. Thank you for joining us this morning. And church, uh, you can go ahead. We're going to be all over the place this morning, but uh, I think if we had a kind of stable stopping place that we might be in, it would probably be Galatians chapter 5. So you can open your Bibles to Galatians 5, uh, verse 19 through 23 will kind of be through there a little bit. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Discernment. We're actually finishing up that series today. And uh, so I just, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through, we've developed a definition. So I just want to remind us of the definition that we have developed. So this is discernment. This is what discernment is. Discernment tests and determines what is going on under the surface. So what we've been examining is kind of like the difference between good and bad or right and wrong or appropriate and inappropriate. And then uh, we said, you know, not everything is black and white and we need the ability to discern in those moments where things aren't black and white, what is kind of the suitable thing to do? What is suitable for the moment or not suitable for the moment? What is pure or impure, rightly motivated or wrongly motivated? Uh, And it's worth saying, we didn't really talk about this much, but discernment is also a really useful tool for determining what is important or not important, right? What, what, uh, what would be something that is worth addressing or maybe something that's like honestly not worth the time of addressing, right? That's, it's helpful to evaluate that too because you may be engaged in doing something that's not necessarily wrong or bad, but it could be a waste of time, right? And so dis- discernment tells you that, hey, this is not that important. This is not worth your time. Discernment will help you to figure that out. So um, what we have been figuring out is that, that discernment and Christian spiritual maturity are tightly linked together. That as you mature more with Jesus, as you mature more in your depth with the Holy Spirit, that your discernment increases, right? So, so uh, the first week we said, hey, discernment and love, because as we grow with Jesus, we grow in love, right? So, so discernment and love, loving well requires discernment, and also discerning well requires love. Love is the beginning of discernment. We said in the second week, that what we actually needed to do to be able to discern what is the will of God is to be surrendered to God, right? To make our bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable. And, uh, and then from there, week three, we talked about discerning our hearts or rather being discerned, right? Letting God take us through the process of testing and that in the midst of that testing, we keep saying yes to Jesus, the word of God made flesh, and the more that we respond to him, the more that the purity of our hearts is revealed. So that's the first three weeks that we've been looking for. And for the most part, this is what we've been doing. We have been kind of looking at us, uh, kind of what is the difference between what our flesh or just kind of ourselves without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, what we would be inclined to do, what's the difference between what we would be inclined to do and and the kind of things that the Holy Spirit would do to us, right? Uh, We've kind of been navigating uh, really the realm of human activity and the realm of human activity plus the intervention of the Holy Spirit, right? Like that's kind of the area that we've been exploring, but there is an additional way that the Bible talks about discernment. An additional way, beyond the realm of mere human activity, the Bible talks about discernment in a different way. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Uh, 
Paul is writing about the manifestation of the Spirit. He says to the Corinthian church, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's saying every person has uh, unique ways that when the Spirit is is at work, these are the things that you'll see from those people, right? So uh, verse eight, he says, for one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. That's a useful thing. When the Spirit is working, this person, you know, in particular, will display unique wisdom. And to another, knowledge according to the same spirit. That's interesting. Okay, so uh, verse 9. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. And then this is very another the working of miracles to another prophecy and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits i'm and again in this passage the apostle paul is writing about spiritual gifts right the manifestations of god's power which come from the spirit Right, he uses the definite article, the spirit, the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, these are the things that come from the spirit. But the one spirit is not the only spirit that is at work in the world. So, so Holy Spirit also comes along and equips certain people to distinguish when either the spirit is at work or other spirits are at work. So the ability to discern then doesn't just involve kind of evaluating the moral quality of something, but certain words and teachings or certain thoughts may take place. And it's not just that we could discern that that thought or that word is either good or not good. In some cases, the implication is that we can actually discern the origin of that thought or that thing, where it came from, its source. Right, so the spirit that produced it or is active in it. So uh, to just kind of help us understand what's happening here, we just say discerning spirits is discerning sources, discerning the origin point of things. So, so a word of encouragement for you, even if you don't have this spiritual gift that, talk, that Paul talks about, kind of the, and the, the spiritual gift would be kind of the supernaturally natural awareness of these things. That's what the spirit spiritual gift is. Even if you don't have that gift, it is still true that if you are a believer in Jesus, you can hone this skill, right? Scripture would seem to tell us that if if you are a believer in Jesus, you actually can hone this skill. You may not naturally have the gift, but you can hone the skill of being able to discern spirits are at work. So, uh, just so we understand, it is one thing to observe kind of the what of something, what something is. It's a level deeper to discern the moral quality of that thing. That's something that we've been talking about. It's yet another level deeper to discern the why behind that thing, the motivation for it. But then at the deepest level, we actually at times can discern the who behind the thing, the source. So when we talk about discerning spirits, we're answering, actually just answering the question, who is behind this? Who is behind this? Okay, so uh, if you're uncomfortable, I'm just going to give you a newsflash. Uh, The Bible clearly teaches that there is a spiritual realm 
under the surface of the things that we can touch and see and feel in this world. Right? Uh, under the surface of what we see and experience on a daily basis. And just as the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of believers, there are many spirits, angels, demons, the like, that are at work broadly in the world. And apparently, the church of Jesus, we actually have a need, a need strong enough that Jesus would come and say, I have to give you a gift through the Holy Spirit in order to be able to discern these things. I have to give this to the church. We have a need to be able to tell who is behind certain things. We need it so much that Jesus says, hey, I died and rose from the death so that I could deliver this gift to my church. And so the Apostle John makes reference to this in 1 John 4, 1. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So in this context, John is referring to the kinds of teachings that we might be inclined to believe or to listen to. He's saying uh, that we need to be vigilant, that we not give credence to false prophets or people who are teaching doctrines of demonic origin, that we need to test things before we believe them. So heads up, uh, just so you know, today we are not going to be talking about demonic doctrines or false prophets or false teaching, uh, and there's a reason for that because we're going to actually take a couple of weeks later this fall to dig into that stuff. Today what we are doing is a little bit more broad than that. We're asking the question, how can we tell what spirits are at work in a thing? So before we launch, uh, we need to kind of identify some categories, some possible uh, who's at work in the world. So there are three personalities that the Bible would tell us are at work in the world. First, there is God, the Holy Spirit specifically, right, who invades the, the life of those who believe in him, but we also see broadly, as you look at scripture, that when God is, is doing things in the world, like uh, it, creation, right, God spoke and everything was created, and then the, uh, Genesis chapter one, it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, that there's some kind of implication that the way God, when he works actively in the world, it is his spirit that is work. So there's God, the Holy Spirit, there's also the flesh, the flesh is a character, if you will, that is at work in the world. The flesh is inside of you. The flesh is inside of me, right? This is uh, kind of our fallen nature, our nature that is easily given over to selfish desires. That's how the Bible refers to the flesh. And then there are demonic spirits at work in the world. And the Bible gives us a key concept that we can use to discern the who behind a thing, and it is this. You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. This means that discerning between spirits is really the ability to recognize who by the fruit that is produced. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians 5, Chapter 20, or sorry, 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and we're going to look at some different fruits that are at play. So first is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's not first in the passage, but I want to uh, consider first the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's interesting. It says, Paul says, against such things there is no law. Right, that, that as you uh, walk with Jesus, as you go deeper in your relationship with the Holy Spirit, the fruit that he produces is the ability to, uh, let's say, bear with annoying people, right? Or uh, is the ability to uh, just kind of overflow with generosity of gift and generosity of words towards other people. Love, right? Uh, or to, in the midst of very hard circumstances, to say, uh, you know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, right? That as we go deeper with Jesus, we can look at the results of what is taking place in our life, and we say, these things, the things that look like this, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what he does, right? This is the result of his work. So, okay, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Let's consider then the fruit of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Uh, verse 21, envy, drunkenness, and like these. So he's like, I could just keep going here, but you know, uh, I'm just going to tell you things that look like this, right? And, and so he, he, he provides this list for us to help us understand, you know, you want to discern what the Holy Spirit is up to in the world. Well, this is what the Holy Spirit produces. If you want to discern what the flesh, and, and not only the flesh, but we could just call it broadly the world, right? When the Bible talks about the world, it's like the combination of all, all of us individuals who have our flesh at play. When we all get together in one place, it kind of causes some bad effects. And so he's saying this is, if you could like look at the results of the flesh, this is kind of what you should expect to see. Right? Something without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, without the intervention of God's common grace, this is what you would see. Divisions, drunkenness, orgies, dissensions, all of this stuff, right? So that's the fruit of the flesh. Right? So that's helpful. I have now tools to say, when I see this, I know the flesh is at play. When I see this, I know the Holy Spirit is at play. But then, like, let's look at the fruit of demonic spirits. Now, we do not have a single passage in the Bible like we do here with the Holy Spirit and the flesh. We don't have a single passage that kind of informs us entirely about the activity of demonic spirits in the world. It's kind of just a, a basic assumption of Scripture that as the writers write, they kind of weave in bits and pieces here and there. But we do have a number of passages that give us kind of different facets of the personality of one that the Bible calls Satan, the adversary and the demons who go with him. And so there is one goal that all of them ultimately have. If we could like look at the whole scope of scripture and ask what are they doing? What is their fruit? It is this. It is destruction of God's image bearers. That is what they're doing. You know what? Like at the beginning of the Bible, God said, "Let us create man in our own image." And that really made Satan angry. Right, because for God to confer his image to something was to, to say, I'm giving them essentially a piece of my glory. Something that he did not give, something that he did not give to spiritual beings, but he about 
humans, let us make man in image. And that really angered Satan. And so Satan was, from that point forward, hell-bent on destroying the image of God. That is what the testimony of Scripture tells us. He despises the image of God. They, the demons who go with him, despise the image of God, and they are dead set on destroying God's image. So Jesus, in using an illustration of sheep and shepherds to talk about his identity in the, the Gospel of John, he says, hey, you know what? Many thieves come, they came before me to steal my sheep. But my sheep did not listen to them. Right, because they know my voice. And so then when I spoke, my sheep came to me. And so this is what he's doing. He's, he's actually kind of laying the groundwork for them to understand the category of other messiahs who had come along, who had said, hey, follow me. I'm the one you should believe. And he's saying, hey, my sheep didn't listen to them, but they know my voice. So he, there are false prophets and false messiahs and false ways of life. And those people gave the impression that they could be followed, but my sheep didn't follow them, they followed me. And then he says this in, on 1010. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Right, so, so the image of God, right? The image of every, that, that every human being has been created in, that image finds restoration and rebuilding and renovation, if you will, in Jesus. Jesus was the most pristine image of God. Then Jesus comes along and says, hey, follow me, and I'm going to do the rebuilding. I'm going to do the renovating. I'm going to uh, kind of do the process of restoring this image and giving new life to it. And Satan and his demons, they hate God's image. So they will find every way that they can to darken and warp in that image. They will do whatever they can to lead people away from the true shepherd who brings restoration to that image. And they may be enticing, but if you look at their fruit, the end result of what following them ends up in, you can see thievery and death and destruction. So here's what that means. That there is a category of darkness and brokenness beyond mere works of the fleshly, sinful, selfish human heart, right? That, that in itself is dark enough, right? I mean, the Bible testifies to that. The selfish human heart is dark enough, but there's a, a work of darkness beyond that that is actually intent on seeing image bearers, God's human beings brought to destruction. And here's the thing, demonic spirits are looking to find opportunity through the works of the flesh. That as we present uh, kind of the works of our fleshly nature, they take advantage of our flesh in order to carry out their destructive agenda. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and then he says, following the prince of the power of of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. What he's saying is that uh, Satan is kind of like this puppet master, this prince of the power of the air, right? Like he's so indiscernible that it's just like, yeah, have you ever like walked into a culture and it's like, just like, what, like, what is the air that we breathe here, right? Like uh, just assumptions, basic assumptions that we have about, about the world. And, and we talk about this like, oh, it's just the air we breathe, right? Uh, 
He's saying, actually, somebody is reinforcing and creating and developing that air, right? That, the, the, the natural assumptions that we have about our culture, the natural things that we carry with us that we might uh, say would even incline us to neglect human life or to despise our neighbor. If that stuff's in the air, it didn't get there by accident. Right? Somebody put it there. So the prince of the power of the air is at work, and what he is doing is he is taking advantage of the passions of our flesh. The passions of our flesh have presented himself, and he's able to kind of get this big melting pot together of all of the passions of our flesh and say, what can I create that is going to be destructive to the image of God? So that's Ephesians chapter 2. Satan sets the course of the world for destruction by capitalizing on the opportunity that is presented by our flesh. So, why are we even talking about all this? Well, as Christians, we need to be aware. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, I, my, my goal this morning, based on that, my goal this morning is to give us tools to increase our discernment. So, uh, I, we're going to answer two questions, basically two questions. And the two questions are, number one, where do demons attack? And number two, how do demons attack? So, uh, so where do demons attack? I'm going to first start off by giving us a key principle. And the key principle is this, that human society is is under the thrall of demonic influence, right? So, so uh, this is what we see in Ephesians chapter two. That's what we just looked at. And uh, so you might be like, well, why doesn't he attack society? Or why isn't society listed as one of the things that he attacks? And the reason it's not listed is because it already belongs to him. Right, it's already his property, right? So I'm not gonna try to say like, yeah, he's out here attacking society because it's his. Okay, so, so where do demons attack? The first place that demons attack, demons attack human bodies and minds. So, so I'm gonna leave a caveat here for mental health categories. There are things that uh, kind of psychology and understanding have, have helped us to see that uh, things that we used to call uh, possession or demonic influence, they have very like reasonable explanations that don't require demons to be at place, right? So there's a big caveat right there. But, um, but I want to give you some examples of how we can know the enemy is at work, whether it be through certain mental health categories or whether it be through more explicit means of interaction. So some clear, very extreme examples of when you can know that the enemy is at work in attacking human bodies and minds when you have something like self-harm at play or suicidal ideation, right? That what, whether that comes from within or whether that comes from a brokenness in the mind and that the, the enemy is attaching himself to that, the intent to either harm yourself or to end your life, that is something that he loves to do. He loves to create this. He hates the image of God. He wants to destroy it. And so when we see these things happening, we can discern that he is at work. A less extreme example, something that is widespread in our culture right now, body dysmorphia, hating your own body. And I really don't like the body that I have been created with, right? Because if he can get you to hate the body that you were created with, he has succeeded in getting you to hate the image of God, right? So because we are whole people, right? Body, mind, spirit, 
soul, however you want to like encapsulate that, we as whole people were made in God's image, which means our body is a part of that image that we were made in. Not just our minds, but our bodies too. If you hate your body, he has succeeded in getting you to hate the image of God. Okay, so that's the first place he attacks. The second place he attacks. Demons attack children and families. In fact, disruption of the family unit is one of the chief tactics of the demonic. Right? So, so if the enemy can separate a child from the authority and care of parents who love them and who are training them up in the way that they should go, then he has succeeded. So just like a note, take, I want to look at an example of how this is working currently. The internet and technology is one of the most significant tools that he uses today. Right? The internet itself is not evil. Technology itself is not evil, but Satan will use devices to infiltrate the formational processes for kids. Right? So, and use from those devices ideas and concepts that are tended to darken and mar the image of God in those children that like wants to restore. So some examples, you know, obviously there's social media, there's all of this like uh, fear of missing out and being excluded so that when I see like a bunch of my friends get together uh, and they're having a party and they post about it on social media, but then I realize that nobody invited me to the party that they had. I didn't used to know about the party, but now I do. And now it makes me question my own significance. Or YouTube algorithms, right, which are literally built to take advantage of your flesh so that when you watch a video and you're, you're sitting here thinking, oh, this video appeals to me. I really like this video. And it has ways that, like, watch, it, it watches every movement that you make kind of in that internet space to determine how much do you like this? How long did you watch this video? And then it takes advantage of your passions and gives you something that pushes you just a little bit further that you really liked. And then, and then you watch that, and then it says, oh, you really liked that. I'm going to push you just a little bit further and give you some other kind of content that takes further advantage of that, that passion that you have. And so that is how the internet is working right now. And so uh, Pastor Don and I were talking about this this week. Uh, as you think of educators, or you think of teachers, like what does every teacher wish that they could have? Every teacher wishes that they could have one-on-one time with their students. Every single teacher. And you know what? Devil gets a lot of one-on-one time with students through the resource of technology. It's just a reality, right? Because he is, he is tweaking it to their individual needs, to their individual personalities, and taking that wherever their passions will follow. So I, I say that, and then I say this, right? The best gift that you can give to any kid is an intact family unit that is invested in their formation and development, that is alert to the fact that Satan is seeking to infiltrate the process of their development. And this is why demons also hate healthy marriages. They despise healthy marriages. They're always seeking to increase division and conflict between husbands and wives because if they can disrupt or even break that marriage, they create greater opportunity for themselves to gain influence in the lives of those kids. All right, number three, demons attack the gospel. 
Galatians 1.8. It's like so. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Believing the good news about Jesus is our entry point into new life. It's the entry point into the, the renovating work of the image of God inside of us, right? So if demons can corrupt the gospel, they can prevent people from finding that restoration, It's no accident that Paul says here, if an angel should preach to you a different gospel and you could look down through the past 2,000 years of history and look at how many false religions have been started by angels who have appeared to people and say, look, I have a new gospel for you. Follow this. Because if they can get people to stop believing the true gospel and stop following the real Jesus, then they can prevent people from ever recovering the image of God that God had originally set out to establish at the beginning. So, um, the flesh, i just give you an example of how this works. The flesh, our flesh says, you know, I've done so many good things in my life. And God should really like those good things that I've done. In fact, they should be good enough to outweigh the bad that I've done. They should be, in fact, I, I feel so good about the good things that I've, got, I've done. Like, that should just be enough for God. God should simply be happy with my righteousness. Now, that, that's my flesh that says that, right? Because I, I love myself, and I love thinking that I'm important and that I'm good enough, Right? But then the demonic takes advantage of that by coming along and saying, you know what, Jesus is great. He showed us the right way to live. So as long as you live a good life and treat others with kindness, you'll find heaven. He'll send out teachers to teach that. And if your heart is already in a place that's saying, hey, you know what, I'm pretty good. And I like being pretty good. And then you hear somebody who says, you know what, you are pretty good. And your goodness is good enough for God. Well, then the demonic will take advantage of your flesh and get you to believe that false gospel. And so by creating a false gospel, demons capitalize on the pride and self-righteousness that is in your soul so that you'll trust your own goodness instead of trusting in Jesus. All right, so the fourth thing that demons attack, demons attack faithful Christians. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says this. So to from being conceited, I mean, it's just incredible his perspective on this whole situation. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the things that he was witnessing from God, God was giving him opportunity to see things and understand that not many people got opportunities to understand. And so he says, to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You know what, demons, demons hate it when Christians live faithfully and they will find every opportunity they can to tempt faithful Christians, to harass them, to do whatever damage God would allow in the life of those Christians or in Paul's case, even allow to take place in his body in order to get them to forsake their faithfulness and become ineffective. That's what he's aiming to do. So Paul was able to recognize what was happening and was able to say that even though, like, yes, uh, a messenger of Satan has come to harass me and this difficulty is now ailing me and, and I need to know that even in this, as I recognize what Satan is doing, even in this, if you look at the next verse, even in this, his grace is sufficient for me. 
right? That he's saying, I know that the enemy is up to something here, and so I am going to steady my soul in the truth that his grace is sufficient for me. If he can discourage you, if he can make you spiral into doubt and be paralyzed by your doubt, if he can make you apathetic towards God's purposes, if he can keep you from pushing farther and deeper into your sanctification, then he has accomplished what he set out to do. And so that, he, he wants to do it. All right, number five. Finally, attack churches. We are the ones who have been given responsibility over the gospel to see the gospel pushed out throughout the world. And uh, he is seeking find every opportunity he can to halt our uh, kind of moving forward of the gospel, to halt our invitation of people into relationship with Jesus. And he has really kind of two big tactics that he uses when he attacks churches. The first thing that he attacks is relationships. So that if he can get you to kind of secretly hold a grudge in your heart against your brother or sister that you'll hold on to and hold on to until a moment when that brother or sister crosses a line that you don't want them to cross and when they do, you just explode that anger on them, that grudge that you hold on to, right? And then he can take advantage of that, your flesh, and create a division with it. You know what he's done in that process? He's now taken the two of you who are having this uh, situation where you're at odds with each other and he's made you less effective for his mission because now this vision is getting in the way of his mission. He, he uh, creates schisms in churches so that he can make those churches less effective and prevent the gospel from going forward. So, so relationships is the first place, but then the other place that he very clearly attacks is the elders of the church the leaders of the church, the people who have given spiritual responsibility to lead and have authority over and uh, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If he can, uh, so I mean, he might put a disqualified elder in place. If he can put a disqualified elder in place, he has succeeded in his goal, right? Because they're not gonna have the same motivations that Jesus would have. If he can put uh, any, any kind of relational tension within the elders of the church, if he can create discord or disunity, he again has succeeded in making the church ineffective, right? So he attacks churches, finally. So those are all the places that he attacks. The next question that we're gonna ask, it's a shorter question, is the how do so i'm just gonna i'm gonna give you three different ways there's one i would say very uncommon way that they attack one fairly uncommon way that they attack and then finally one free way that they attack the first very uncommon way that demons attack would be through possession now we i mean goodness i could probably do two or three sermons on possession, right? We don't have time to unpack possession. But I will just simply tell you one thing. Demons require permission to invade lives in this way, right? So almost always when this is happening in the life of a person, you can point to that person's interaction with the occult or you can point to that person's interaction with sorcery or pagan religions as a key event in which they opened the door for demonic activity in their lives and then increasingly gave themselves over to that activity. So that's, uh, that's very uncommon. We, we're not gonna go much further on that, but that's just something to be aware of. The second fairly uncommon way that uh, attack through oppression. So we see with Paul, right, his thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan who had come to harass him. 
We see this with Peter. Uh, Jesus is talking to Peter and he said, Peter, I wanna tell you something. Satan has come to me and he has asked me for permission to sift you like wheat. Right, the, the idea being, and, and Jesus doesn't say, by the way, and I told him no. <laughs> Meaning that very likely Satan was given permission to sift Peter like wheat. And so, uh, so you have this with Peter, and you also see this with Job. You read the whole book of Job. At the beginning of the book, there's this interaction between the adversary, Satan, and God. And Satan comes to God and says, look at this man, Job. He's righteous, but you know why he's righteous? He's righteous because you've given a lot of good things. Right, so let me touch those good things. Let me bring disaster into his life, and then I'll show you that he's not as good as you think he is. Right? And so, uh, so in each of those cases... There are two things that are, that are true, it seems, when we see oppression take place. The first thing that is true is that you are a threat to the purposes Right, so, so this means that you're probably serving, or you're praying, or you're evangelizing, or you're taking some kind of significant ground for the kingdom. And so, so those demons are intent to disrupt the activity that you're engaging in. So that's the first thing that then the second thing that it also has to be true is that God actually has to permit the demon to do those things, right? Because it, 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 with uh, Peter, you saw it, and with, uh, even with Paul, you said, Paul said God allowed this demon to, or this messenger of Satan to come and harass me. And then we see uh, with, and in each stories, you have the one authority saying to the demonic spirit, okay, I am permitting you to go and engage in this. So those are uh, very uncommon, fairly uncommon. The place where we need to spend most of our energy is here on demons attack through influence. So let's just define that. Influence is the use of schemes and designs. Those are the biblical words that are used. Schemes and designs to entice your flesh to go further for purposes. Ephesians 6, the armor of God passage, tells us to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we are not ignorant of his designs. 2 Timothy 2 about being caught in the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. So influence is his primary strategy. I have a lot of good news for you. The devil cannot make you do anything. So what he wants to do is he wants to get us to do what he cannot do. Right? He wants to get us to accomplish his purposes for him. Right? This was his strategy with Jesus. Jesus comes and he's driven out by the Holy Spirit the wilderness and and satan meets him out there in the wilderness and gave gave uh, temptations because satan could not destroy jesus or his purposes his goal was to tempt jesus to carry out his purpose for him to carry out the destruction that he wanted to accomplish on his own right and this is his strategy with us and for what it's worth i'm not above being exposed to these kinds of influence i'm not opposed or i'm not uh, above you know at times giving in to these kinds of influence and by the way neither are you right that we're constantly exposed to this kind of attack he looks spots 
and then tells us lies to take advantage of our weaknesses. Right? He lies to us about what God thinks. Yeah, that thing, that's not that big of a deal. It's a little bit of a deal, but not that big of a deal. And you want it, so go for it, right? Because it doesn't matter that much. And then he lies about the outcome, right? And you know what? God doesn't care that much. And also, like the fallout's not going to be that bad either, right? You don't have to worry about much fallout from that. There's not, the results aren't going to do much. So you can go. And then after you do it, he comes around and says, oh, you did that, and look, like, it didn't, it wasn't that bad. Here's more. If you want more, if you want to go a little bit deeper, here's a, here's a way that you can kind of proceed deeper into this realm so that you can more fully carry out his destructive purposes. So I just want to um, ask the question then, how do I discern demonic influence? Well, number one, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Are, are you more inclined to despise your brother or sister or even just like be frustrated with them? In fact, was this kind of like a seemingly unusual event that resulted in you being angry with someone and you weren't previously angry with them? And might it cause you to stop and think, I wonder why that event happened? Right? Because if the end result is you hating your brother, then the demon has succeeded in what he set out to do. Right, so look at the fruit. Number two, I would tell you to recognize the temptation that pushes you further. Right, so, so say like you have this moment in your flesh where your flesh gives way, you give an open opportunity for, the, uh, for, for Satan to look and say, ah, see that's where I'm gonna jump in. That's where I'm gonna disrupt things. That's where I'm gonna make things more intense. And so the way that you can tell that the demonic is at work is that you have greater, greater opportunity to go further and further and deeper into the sin. And number three, I would say listen, oh goodness sakes, listen to warnings from your brothers or sisters. We have a really hard time with this we do, and I, I, I don't want to permit us to go around making judgments of each other. But I think particularly in the cultural time and place that we live in, we have a very hard time with this because we don't want to receive any word of criticism from the people around us. We don't, we don't want people to question our motives. or uh, You know, when somebody says, hey, this looks like a demonic attack to us, it, it kind of, the way that that is said can make us feel ashamed that we would allow that into our lives, right? And so we're very sensitive to having these kinds of interactions, but goodness, when a brother or sister says, hey, I see the tactics of the enemy at work here. Please listen. Open your ears. I have watched Christians not listen to this warning and split churches because they've not listened. So pay attention, listen well. Okay, so what? So what? I have two. The first one is quite long, so if you'll go with me on it, um, it'll be a good journey. It's more than discerning their activity. It's actually, it's discerning the opportunity. So more than discerning their activity, discern the opportunity. There are, uh, I'm, we're gonna go through a list of seven things. Uh, 
Those are, they're, they're specific scriptural examples that are given that say, when you do this, it creates opportunity for Satan. When you do this, Satan has opportunity to attack. So let's just go through the list. The first place, number one, becoming an elder and being young in the faith. This does not being, mean being young by age, but not being a Christian very long. Becoming an elder and being young in the faith. First Timothy 3.6 says, He, that is the elder, must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So that's the, the first one to be aware of. The second one. Becoming an elder with a bad reputation in the world. Immediately after that verse, he says this in verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul's just saying, look, here's the opportunity. You create this, you put in an elder who's not ready to be an an elder who's young in the faith or an elder who has a terrible reputation in the community. And you know what you're going to do? Create tons of opportunity for the enemy to attack. Uh, Number three, refuse to forgive. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Paul is saying to them, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Meaning, he's saying, I am not going to withhold forgiveness that you are handing out. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. He's saying, if you're going to have a heart of forgiveness and I'm going to withhold forgiveness, that's dangerous because any unforgiveness that is existent in the body of Christ creates opportunity for Satan to play out his schemes willingly. So, refusing to forgive creates tons of opportunity for Satan. In the same verse, we see another reality that opportunity is created. Ignorance of tactics. Verse 11, he's saying, so that we would not be outwitted. Right? If you can stay blind to the ways that he works, he has an advantage over you. This is why we have the word of God. The word of God helps us understand the way that our enemy is at work in the world so that we can be prepared to do that we're called. Number five, an opportunity is given in going to bed angry. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Right? It's saying, if you're willing to let the sun, if you're willing to stay angry, if you're not willing to get this thing resolved in your soul or with the person that you're interacting with, and you're going to go to sleep on that, you know what it's going to do? It's going to harden your heart and create opportunity for Satan to come in and create division. Withholding intimacy from your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Do not deprive one another. That perhaps by, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying, hey, you need to be aware there is an opportunity that Satan is looking to take advantage of. Right? And when you deprive one another, he's saying you're creating opportunity. So seven, false, number seven, false ideas. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Verse five, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The idea here is that Satan all the time seeking to develop ideas that your mind can latch onto and then the way Paul understands it in this passage, when your mind grabs onto those ideas, the, the demonic has now developed a stronghold in your thinking, a stronghold in your ways of interacting in the world. And so he's saying, we don't let those strongholds stay around. We destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, we do not let these things persist. So those are all ways that, that um, the Apostle Paul just makes it clear if you allow this, you're creating opportunity for the devil to go to work. Finally, number two, and this is really good news. Number two, so what number two? We have nothing to be afraid of. First John 4, 3 through 4 says, Every spirit that does not confess in God. It's the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Then he says this in verse 4, Little children... You are from God, and you have overcome them. Not you will overcome them. Not you might overcome them. By your believing in Jesus and the blood of Jesus being applied to your life, they literally have no more power over you. They can't do anything to you. They can't make you do anything. You belong to Jesus. And the more that you tell the enemy that you belong to Jesus, the more he is reminded of his ultimate defeat. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So church, employ the weapons of our spiritual warfare. When we discern the enemy's destructive activity, it should push us deeper, deeper in our surrender to the Holy Spirit, deeper into knowing God's word, deeper into prayer, deeper into worship. Why? I want to give you three reasons why it should do this. Number one, we have a quote out on the wall to remind us of what we're doing and what our purpose is here, that, that we are stories God is writing about Jesus making things new. And every bit of newness that comes about in your life, every work of renovating that image of God inside of you, every time that that happens a little bit more, every step that you take further in obedience to him puts the devil to shame. Number two, the reason we push ourselves deeper in these is that we are giving ourselves more to the Holy Spirit in his fruit-bearing work. Right, Because his fruit-bearing work is the counteractive agent to the destructive work that the enemy is seeking. It's the thing that works against what the demonic forces in the world are up to. And then finally, every deeper step that we take with Jesus, while Satan is attempting to influence us, right, and, and then even the deeper steps that we take after we've allowed Satan to influence us, right? Because I don't want to preach this pretending that some of you haven't given into temptation or aren't going to give into temptation at some point, right? But that you might go to Jesus immediately after giving in 
Every time we do that, every time we go deeper with the Holy Spirit, every time we turn to Jesus, even after we've sinned, every time we refuse to wallow in shame, but say, no, I know where my rock is, I know where my trust is, every time we do that, we remind him of his defeat. The blood of Jesus is powerful to cover even the times when you get into temptation. And when he tempts you, his goal is to accuse and discourage you And so instead of running to shame and to separation from God, you would run to worship of God and affection for God and rest in God and adoration of God, right? Every time you do that, you remind him that Jesus' blood is powerful and his defeat is certain. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I am... I am grateful for the power of your blood because I know even the weakness of my own flesh, weak enough to not only present the enemy opportunity, but weak enough that I would give in to the opportunity that he presents. And Lord, may, may any of us in this room who give in to that opportunity understand the invitation that you're giving us, understand to uh, confess and repent quickly that the blood of your son cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess. May we quickly turn back to you and may we be invited to go much deeper with you. That we might actually not simply become those who stop sinning, but that we might become faithful powerful, counteractive agents in the world against the work that he is doing. That we might extend the beauty of your, the truth of your gospel. That people who on any other terms were subject to the prince of the power of the air now are invited to have Jesus be their authority, to have Jesus be their king, to have Jesus be their savior and thereby be set free from that which they are subject to. Lord Jesus, these are gifts that you give us. Thank you especially for the opportunity this morning to celebrate communion, to remember the power of your blood which has set us free from the grips of the enemy. Would you be glorified further in our worship this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.